0: We'll be in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking particularly at verses 18 through 20, but we'll read verses uh, 1 to 23 or so. So Colossians 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it does also, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learn it from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you also, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for... Repetition of this passage so that we might again and again scan the pages of a text and see more and more delicacies of your word, more golden slivers pop out before us. And Father, as we approach the riches of this text this night, Lord, will we help us to behold, as our pastor has just prayed, with spiritual eyes, to hear with spiritual ears the truths of Your preeminent glory as our incarnate Redeemer. Father, prepare us now. Help us to behold Your glory and to laud Your Christ forever. We ask this in Your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. In our passage tonight, Paul continues his laud of Christ that we started in verses 15 and 17. In those verses 15 and 17 to 17, we said that as our divine creator, Christ is worthy of our worship. But the Colossians' worship was being pulled away from Christ because there was something new and better in Colossae. And it was found in the false teaching that was beginning to develop in that town. Like the Colossians, our worship is often compromised because we are looking for something new, better, fresh. But Paul loves Christ because he and he alone is creating something new. So this is what I want us to see tonight. We laud Christ because He is the new incarnate Redeemer. We laud Christ because he is the new incarnate redeemer. In our passage, Paul lauds Christ because he is the beginning of the new creation, because of his incarnate person, and because of his peace making work. So in our passage, Paul lauds Christ because he is the beginning of the new creation, because of his incarnate person, and because of his peace making work. Those are our three points. And so for our first point, we laud Christ because He is the beginning of the new creation. In verse 18, Paul continues his reason for why Christ is preeminent over all things. Verse 17 summarizes what we saw last time about about Christ and His pre-existing divinity. We said that Christ was preeminent over all creation. He is before all things. Remember that Paul used the language of Adam as the original man to describe the preeminence of Christ over all of creation. As a creature, Adam was the image of God, firstborn in creation. But Christ, in His pre-incarnate divinity, He is the true image of God, the firstborn ruler over all creation. Christ's divine sonship pattern Adam's creaturely sonship where Adam was preeminent in creation, the divine Son is preeminent over creation. Verse 18 carries this same point, but extends it beyond the original creation. He extends it beyond the original creation. Christ is preeminent not only of the old creation, but of the new. Paul starts by saying that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ's headship is His authoritative rule over His new people, us. I think it's fascinating. I want us to note, I think it's fascinating that Paul begins talking about the new creation in reference to his church. The church is the clearest sign that the new creation has broken into the old. Just as Christ is ruler over the old creation, with its physical and spiritual realms, Christ is king over the new, starting with His church. Paul explains that Christ's kingly status over the new creation is due to Him being the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. By the first, or the beginning, Paul means that Christ's resurrection is the first of the new creation reality. It's an echo of what we hear there in Genesis 1. -1. In the beginning, God created. But here now, in the new creation, in the beginning, Christ. Also, we said that the term firstborn denotes a sovereign rule. So Christ's resurrection is both the inauguration of the new creation and His sign of His sovereign rule over it. And the result of this sovereign rule over the new creation is found there at the end of verse 18. So that in everything, that in everything, Christ might be preeminent. Both over the old and the new. Christ and His resurrection as the beginning of the new creation is one of the most prominent themes found in the New Testament. In fact, Paul repeats this same point in Ephesians. If you would, please turn there with me to Ephesians 1, verse 20. Ephesians 1, verse 20. And in that passage, Paul is thanking God for the power at work within the church, being the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And so we read there in verse 20 that God worked in Christ... When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, sovereign rule. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, and we could supply in the old creation. But not only this, not only in this age, but in the age to come, the new creation. And he has put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And the covenant of redemption, and in the inter-trinitarian covenant, the Father was pleased to glorify the incarnate Son for redeeming His people from sin, Satan, and death. This glory as Redeemer is His unique preeminence over the new creation. And as the people, Christ won. And as the people, Christ won. The church displays the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, go back to Colossians 1 verse 18. Read over that passage. And he is the head of the body the church. Do you see the immense privilege we have as Christ's church? We are one of the reasons listed for why King Jesus is preeminent above all things. It's not that we do anything to make Jesus any more glorious. He's too good for us that no but we are the people that our king has chosen to display his glory we are the people that show that he has done something new and that the new creation has come imagine the the relief of the Colossians with this news they were told that something new and better was found in the false teaching. Something that really captivated the outside world. But it was just more the same stale lies that had been spoken since the serpent in the garden. The true groundbreaking reality is that Christ has risen from the dead and this new creation is seen through His redeemed people. And so, brothers and sisters, let this be an encouragement to you. As the church, if you're anything like me, you love looking at the world and seeing it spin. The world feels like it is constantly changing, jumping from one trend to another. We may feel that we must keep up with all the changing trends in order for the church to be relevant to normal people. People care about this cause, so we need to care about that cause too to be relevant to culture or to our community. We need to adopt practices that attract the unbelieving world to our church. Our messages should be tailor-made for the community, making points that they actually care about. And I could go on and on. But brothers and sisters, hear this. When we try to serve our community in this way, We don't give them anything that will change their lives. We don't give them truly anything new. We give them more of the same self-centered service that they expect from the church. By changing with the world, the church can give up what makes us so otherworldly amazing. By the old truths of the gospel and by the church remaining stuck in her ways... We offer something truly new to an always changing, always aimless world. What makes the church new and fresh is not us adopting the latest fad or model for attracting folk. What makes us new and fresh is us being faithful to that old, old gospel message in the teachings of our Lord. And that's it. That's it by being the unchanging pillar in the community, we testify, brothers and sisters, by us being stuck in our ways, we testify to an otherworldly reality. We testify to something new that this world cannot offer with their lies. To the outside eye, the church looks like it's fading away, a remnant of a bygone era. But the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. We reflect the, the glory of the one who is the beginning of the new creation. And Christ's church testifies to the inbreaking of the, no, of the new into the old. It is the old that is fading away, but only the new will last forever. And so, brothers and sisters, just a simple exhortation for as we try to engage with our community as we try to seek the lost here in our own lives, just a simple exhortation, remain steadfast. Be unchanging. Be that stick in the mud. Because you will be the pillar in this community that offers eternal truths to an often changing world. Brothers and sisters, this is how we truly sl- serve this lost and fleeting world. We must reflect the preeminent, unchanging Christ. For He is the One who is making all things new. Moving on, I want us to ponder a question. Something really unique happened in the Incarnation. By becoming preeminent in the new creation through His resurrection... Christ gained a peculiar glory that He did not possess beforehand. But how, we must ask, but how could more glory be added to the divine person who possesses all glory in and of Himself? This brings us to our second point. We laud Christ because He is the incarnate Redeemer. Excuse me. We love Christ because He is an incarnate person. Verse 19 gives us the first reason for why Christ is preeminent over all things. Verse 19 begins with four, meaning that what follows explains the basis of why Christ is considered preeminent or supreme in the new creation. So why is Christ supreme? Here are the reasons. The reason for Christ's preeminence is that in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is equivalent to what Paul later says in this letter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, for in Him, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Just another way of putting it. So the reason Christ is preeminent is because He is the divine Son who took on flesh. Christ is the incarnate second person of the Trinity. He is very God of very God who came down from heaven and was incarnate and made man. And so with that, as God, Christ is preeminent inherently, right? He is the one who has all authority in and of Himself. He has all glory in and of Himself. He has intrinsic glory. And of course, His claim to divinity makes Him preeminent in both the old and new creations. But the focus of verse 19 is not His divinity per se. But here's here's what we should be seeing. The focus of verse 19 is Christ's suitable humanity for His divinity. Let me say that again. The focus of verse 19 is Christ's suitable humanity for His divinity. Here's what we mean. Verse 19 is an allusion to Psalm 68. In the Septuagint, which is just the Greek Old Testament, uh, the, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, says that God is pleased to dwell at, at Zion, where the temple resides. That's the only time in the entirety of the rest of Greek Scripture that we see the phrase, pleased to dwell. And the temple, as we know, is often described as being filled with God's glory. That is, the fullness of His presence such as we see there in Colossians 1. So what Paul is doing in verse 19 is effectively saying that Christ's body is the new eschatological temple, which the rest of the New Testament makes abundantly clear. We could go to Ephesians 2 or Revelation 21 to see that Christ's own body, His own humanity, is the chosen means to reveal God's glory to humanity. So how does Christ's body as the temple help us with our answer? Christ did not and cannot gain glory to His divinity. He cannot. One of the attributes of God is that He cannot change, including increase His glory. He is all-glorious enough. He does not need us to add to His glory because He is intrinsically all-glorious. But here's the catch. In His humanity... In his humanity, Christ did gain greater glory in his state of humiliation, or in his state of exaltation, than he possessed in the state of humiliation. Here's what we mean In the state of humiliation, from his humble birth to his life of service to the death on the cross, Christ's incarnate body did act as a temple. God's glory, glory truly dwelt among us in Christ's humiliated state. John 1.14. But here's the catcher. The end goal was always for Christ's humanity to be in the state of exaltation. His resurrected, His ascended, and His session. This was to be the vessel. His exalted humanity was to be the vessel for God's intrinsic glory. Christ's resurrected, exalted body was the end goal of Him displaying the glory of God to humanity. Brothers and sisters, Christ's state of humiliation was temporary, like the portable tabernacle. The temporary tabernacle revealed the glory of God, but the permanent temple was more externally glorious. The temple was always the end goal for God's dwelling in Israel. And so it is with Christ's humanity and His state of exaltation. As pilgrims on our way to the heavenly Zion, we have a greater hope than what our forebathers, forefathers had in Israel. They had a temple where God's veiled glory resided. But we traveled to see the face of the resurrected and exalted Christ where we will behold true glory, the true glory of the invisible God. And so though we do not see Him, we love Him. With the heart of faith, we see Christ as He is revealed in the Word of the Gospel. By faith we are now united with Christ who sits in the heavenly places. But, brothers and sisters, here is the grand kicker. One day our faith will be sight. We will see the exalted humanity of Christ. We will know the everlasting presence of God because we are before Him. Our communion with God will become consummated when we see Christ in his exalted humanity. And on that last great day, we pilgrims will see our God in his full tabernacling presence in the face of Jesus Christ in his exalted incarnation and in his inca- uh, exalted humanity. And so, brothers and sisters, why spoil our hope, this grand hope, with counterfeits that will never satisfy? The Colossians were tempted with this. They were trying to see God's glory in his heavenly temple by either bringing the divine down to them through their spiritual devotions or by trying to exalt themselves to heaven through their ritual purity. Either way they tried. They failed to see that God had already revealed His glory in Jesus. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh for this very reason. It is only by Christ's incarnation, particularly in His exalted state, that we will see God. Brothers and sisters, this reality is why we do not need images in our worship and teaching ministry. The second commandment forbids the images of our Lord in worship. Even the images of Christ's humanity. But the more positive encouragement of this commandment is that we would long, ultimately, for the beatific vision. We should long for the vision of Christ as he is in heaven. We should long for the day that our faith will become sight and our communion with God will be uninterrupted by the distractions of this age. Rather than bring Christ down through counterfeit images, through through illustrations, plays, videos, and so and other means, don't bring Christ's glory down, brothers and sisters. There's no need Rather, bring, bring your eyes to look to Zion in the heavenly places. Keep traveling to that heavenly celestial city, preparing to see Christ in all of His true glory. Brothers and sisters, Lord Christ, because He is the divine person who became incarnate. Laud Christ, because His Humanity has been exalted. Lord Christ, because He is the perfect revelation of God's glory in bodily form. You don't need counterfeits. And our God doesn't require them. Rather, look to the places that He has shown us that reveal the glory of the Son. Both His humanity in heaven and the face of Scripture. That is all we need. We need the Scriptures alone and the hope of heaven. That is how our Christ is worshipped. And so, moving on. The reason for Christ's preeminence over the new creation is His incarnate person. But Paul adds another reason, bringing us to our third point. We laud Christ because of His peacemaking work. We laud Christ because of His peacemaking work. In verse 20, Christ creates peace through His cross. Paul continues his reasons for why Christ is preeminent in the new creation. As I said earlier, verses 15 to 20 are poetic, and they are a chiastic structure. That's just a fancy way of saying that there will be a parallel and there will be some comparison, so just stick with me. In other words... Just as Christ made all things for Himself in verse 16, Christ will reconcile all things to Himself in verse 20. All things include the heavens and the earth, meaning both spiritual and natural reality. The idea here is that the new creation will reverse the curse of Adam. Peace marks the new creation where the old is marked by disharmony. And so peace will mark the new creation, both physically and spiritually. All enemies will be subject to Christ, and disharmony harmony will be removed from the cosmos. All of creation will be just as Christ intends. Christ has started the work of this new creation, this new peaceful creation, by the blood of His cross. As we said earlier, Christ's body is His temple, is the temple. In the Old Testament the temple was the place that mediated the presence of God to his people but it was also the place that reconciled the sinners to the holy God. The sacrifices of the temple, the sacrifices of the temple reconciled sinners to God so that they were allowed entrance into God's covenant community. But the cross of Christ reconciles us for our greatest need. The sinner's greatest need is not entrance into the land of Canaan nor is it the doorway of the physical temple. Our greatest need is peace and reconciliation with God. In our sin, we cannot commune with the holy God. We have rebelled against Him, but through the cross of Christ, our sins are atoned for. By faith, we believe that Christ bore the curse of our sin and made us acceptable and pleasing before God. In Christ, restored rebels commune with God in peace and harmony now. And for all those who do not know of Christ, and children, I think of you. Children, you can have peace with God in Christ. All you must do is repent from your sins and turn to Him, knowing that He will save all those who come to Him. And so, Christ's exalted humanity both inaugurates the new creation and reconciles sinners to the presence of God. Those spiritual enemies still rise against Christ. Sin still wages war in our soul. And the old creation toils in its corruption. Ultimately, peace is what marks the new creation that God in Christ has brought. So to summarize, the dawn of a new creation has come to us in the cross of Christ Though the new has come only in part, we must see that the cross of Christ has done something truly new. Everyone, turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. This Here's the crucifixion scene of our Lord. All the horrors of the old age have come upon Jesus. It's at this scene where Jesus has given up His Spirit and He has shouted, It is finished. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 51, And behold, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after Christ's resurrection. Brothers and sisters, at the cross... Christ came bringing new, resurrected life. At the cross, God's temple glory is no longer veiled, but radiates to the ends of the earth. At the cross, the very foundations of the earth, the very foundations of the old creation, shook. The cross of Christ is our God saying that the old creation has been given notice. The new creation has broken down the door, and it is not going anywhere. And so, brothers and sisters, the very foundations of the earth rejoice at the fact that Christ was making a new creation at His cross. No longer is Adam's failure going to pollute God's good creation. No longer will man end his miserable life with a cold plot of dirt. But Christ is reconciling all things to himself. The dead will be raised again to the newness of life, not to the life as we know it now, not to the life of the old creation but to the peace of the new that Christ has established on the cross. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, let this be an encouragement to your soul. Especially to those who feel the weight of this world upon them. Does your life drag you down? Maybe you have strained relationships with friends or family. There's a brokenness in your relationship that causes times of deep sadness and woe. There's a disharmony that you cannot fix. Maybe your work has many frustrations that causes you severe anxiety. Maybe you feel that you can't catch your breath and the fear of the unknown overwhelms you. Maybe you have just major life crises happening in your life or major decisions coming your way, thinking through whether or not we should try having children, moving to a new town, continuing school, shepherding your unruly kids, or just trying to save enough money to feel a little bit more peace about the future. All of us here are in some way there. Maybe you're just trying to retire and find a little peace in this life. This life, brothers and sisters, you know by experience, it has a way of just giving us more and more and more frustrations than we than that we can often handle. And let me just give you a word of encouragement. It is all right to feel this way. But the world is a bit much. It is part of living in a cursed world. Is part of living in the old creation that is still here with us. But take solace. Remember the cross of Christ. He has made something new. His new creation breaks the cycle of sin and despair that marked the old age. And the hope He provides gives us peace in the midst of this horrifying, frustrating, and overwhelming world. So the next time you begin to look upon your poor lot in life, brothers and sisters, remember the cross. The next time you despair in another broken relationship, remember the cross. The next time you face the woes of this world and the travesty that is this life, I pray that you remember the cross. By your faith in Christ, you are something new. So walk in that newness of life, dear brother, dear sister. As you face the same old struggles and woes, walk with the joy and confidence that knowing Christ, with the knowledge that Christ will sweep away, will sweep away all of our afflictions. This life is but a moment more. In light of the peace and joy of eternity, when we see Christ face to face, you can face the curse of this world today. And if the Lord tarries, death will come for us all. Let it come. Because dear Christian friend, that is not our end. Our end is not a cold grave. The warm embrace of Christ. Oh, how quickly the misery of this life fades away with that very thought. How quickly will the miseries of this life fade away when we hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enjoy. Enter the joy of your master. In conclusion, we laud Christ. Because He is our new incarnate Redeemer. He is the beginning of something new. He is the incarnate Son of God, revealing the glory of God to us. And He has finished His peacemaking work, which He will consummate when we see Him again in glory. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, we belong to Christ's new creation. Laud Him, laud Him, laud Him for His mercy and grace towards us. Let us pray. Oh, Father, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to simply take him at his word. To know that we have the promises of Christ, that by our simple allegiance to him, our love for him, our simple trust in what he has provided for us, Lord, that he has made something new and that this old, cursed world will not have the final say, but our Christ will. Oh, Father, may you give us a heart full of laud and worship as we are about to sing your praises. For you indeed, oh, Father, Son, and Spirit are worthy. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.